I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is Reactionary Minds, a project of the unpopulist. The mainstream of the American right, as well as the Republican Party, looks quite a bit different today than it did 10 years ago. Trumpism's rise and its near total takeover of the GOP has fundamentally changed our political landscape. To talk through what's going on and to explore the best ways to approach understanding the evolution of the illiberal right, I'm joined today by Damon Linker, author of the substack Eyes on the Right. He's also a senior fellow with the Open Society Project at the Niskanen Center and a weekly participant on the Begged Differ podcast at The Bulwark. Both of our projects, so Eyes on the Right and then this podcast, Reactionary Minds, are about understanding the forces of a liberalism that, that appear to be more threatening today than it than they seem to have been in the recent past. What's your approach to getting at that that deeper understanding? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. I, I value quite a lot what you're trying to do and do think it's uh, a sort of um, uh, a kind of shared project that we have here. And uh, the more the merrier uh, and the more the better for our politics. Um, I guess what I try to bring to the discussion and analysis is um, – a sort of uh, something I talk about in my inaugural post for Eyes on the Right, which is a kind of uh, empathy for what uh, is driving people to embrace the populist right. Now, by that, I do not mean kind of making the case for them. Uh, what I mean is trying to think our way into the minds of people who find uh, these messages appealing. What is it about uh, the liberal order that has them feeling discontented? What has them receptive to these severe critiques of the liberal order? Uh, and the, the, the kind of method behind the madness, the goal of this approach is to, to construct a more effective response. Uh, to actually try to meet uh, the populist right um, where it is and speak on the basis of its premises rather than always begin from liberal premises where what you end up with is just sort of talking past each other and uh, kind of rejecting each other's uh, starting points without ever actually engaging with them. Uh, directly. So I guess the, the rationale would be you kind of you, you have to move the two parties a little bit closer together before they can really kind of duke it out over what's really at stake. So that that's sort of in abstract terms, at least what I'm trying to accomplish. I had in that that opening essay for for Eyes on the Right, I had underlined that part about empathy because it sometimes feels hard for I have I have a lot of friends who are deeply involved in gay rights and trans rights, for example, and to, to say to them, you know, you should approach with empathy, understanding of people who are labeling you groomers and saying, you know, you can't have pictures of your same-sex spouse on your desk if you're a school teacher, or people who want to institute a Catholic theocracy over the country. Like these are really threatening things and really immediately dangerous things, you know, proud boys showing up at pride events. And so it can be hard to say if you're in that situation just to think like I should be, 
I should be trying to understand at an empathetic level the people who are calling me groomers. Yeah, yeah, I I totally understand that, um, and it it's a natural human response, and and it is, in that respect, what I'm sort of advocating is is difficult. It's a kind of challenge, and it it kind of works against the instincts that are provoked by our politics, where both sides, and you know, I I am guilty of often using the formulation both sides, but I don't usually mean a kind of moral equivalency. It's a kind of formal mirroring that tends to happen in partisan politics. So what I mean is that both sides in our politics um, have a kind of activist sensibility these days where the goal is not simply to really persuade the persuadable. It's also to kind of provoke your enemy. So you try to um, say the most outrageous, insulting thing, the most caricatured version of your opponent in the hopes that they will then lash out against what you're saying in an extreme way, which will then help you in your own position. So, um, you see, you see this a lot in, uh, you know, obviously in the entire, uh, right wing media edifice that is out there constantly. And it's part of it involves something else I talked about in my inaugural post about the, the fallacy of composition where, where, uh, the fallacy involves you take one part of a whole that is kind of particularly provocative or outrageous or insulting and you, you, you direct huge amounts of attention to that and treat it as if it is exemplary of the whole. So, is it true that uh, professors, especially in the humanities and social sciences, on the whole lean to the left? Absolutely true, indisputably the case. Is it true that all professors or nearly all professors are left-wing activists who have contempt for conservatives and centrists and want to humiliate students who come from those ideological starting points in the classroom? No, not at all. And yet we now have a whole infrastructure on the right where a series of websites kind of are out there trolling, asking for young conservative students to send examples of particularly outrageous left-wing professorial uh, kind of pedagogical transgressions, which then get promoted on those websites that then get picked up by Tucker Carlson, who then runs a 15-minute segment on prime time for Four million viewers on Fox News, the premise of which is, look at how terrible all these left-wing professors are. Don't send your kids to, to college because they're going to be brainwashed into be leftist authoritarians. That's the process in a nutshell. And there is a way in which it also works in reverse, where the left will fasten on to the most egregious, you know, fascistic statement of someone on the right and then try to make it seem as if 
everyone from Liz Cheney on over to Trump and then past Trump to like proud boy, neo-fascist, like uh, this guy, Nick Fuentes, like everything between them is kind of all equally terrible. And now why would someone who's a Democrat or, or another kind of progressive want to say that? Well, because you want to win the election, right? And so you don't want anyone anywhere to vote for the other side. So you you try to collapse the distinctions and assimilate everyone who's your opponent in an election to the worst example of the other side. So it's a temptation that I think does need to be resisted, maybe not always at the level of political contestation, where this can be a very effective tactic, but at the level of intellectual reflection for understanding's sake. We need to try to not let ourselves be triggered in the way that our political opponents very much would like us to be for their own benefit. When we're approaching that task, should we be distinguishing so let's let's just stick to assessing the right, although I think this argument applies, as you said, to looking at ideologies more broadly. But should we be distinguishing, say, conservatism generally as as a political ideology from the the base of people who think of themselves, you know, ordinary voters who think of themselves as conservatives, but may hold, as we know from political science data, like people's self-described labels often affixed to wildly diverse viewpoints that are often, you know, in, in direct contact with other people affixing the same label to themselves versus the, the people actually in power so the ones who are controlling or or have access to you know the levers of the state and how it directs its its coercive forces because it seems like one response to what you've just said is yes of course say there are we shouldn't pick out the most extreme examples of bad stuff on the right and say that's representative of everyone just like we shouldn't do that for the left or any other group but it does seem like one thing that's happened in the last, say, six years is that the most extreme parts of the right have gained control of the levers of power. And so they're the ones who are setting the broader agenda for what happens when the right is in control, even if the base is much more moderate. Yeah, I I, I take the point, and uh, I, I'm glad you brought up the the uh, the topic of distinction making because that's yet another thing that I I kind of am pressing in in the Substack um, and in my writing lately. So I'd love to talk through that. I'm actually working right now on um, on a relatively short post uh, in response to uh, an op ed that uh, the writer and columnist Max Boot published in uh, the Washington Post on today, which is Wednesday, uh, July 6th, in which he says, in, an, in effect, you know, it uh, looks like Trump might not be the nominee in 2024. After all, it'll be, it could be Ron DeSantis. And actually, he's worse because he's kind of more disciplined and smarter and so forth. So he's a bigger threat than Trump. And I'm pushing back on that on the basis of distinction making. Uh, so let, let's walk this through. And it touches on a lot of what you raised in your question. Um, I don't think there is anything um, written in stone that what conservatism or kind of, you know, right of center politics in a liberal democracy, what its policy matrix 
has to be. From Ronald Reagan through, say, the Mitt Romney campaign in 2012 in the United States, what did conservatism mean? Well, it pretty much meant kind of suspicion of big government, uh, support for cutting taxes whenever possible, uh, generally in favor of free trade, in favor of pretty much open immigration policy, uh, a, a kind of muscular foreign policy directed towards spreading democracy around the world and opposing authoritarianism. And then finally, a kind of principled moral traditionalism on social issues uh, that ranged from appointing judges who would overturn Roe v. Wade, which has recently been a success after 49 years of trying, to, uh, you know, opposition to the series of uh, reforms that have come up on the progressive left from uh, racial issues through to uh, uh, women's rights, gay rights, trans rights, and so forth. So that's kind of what it meant to be a conservative until pretty recently. Now with Trump, it is it it became with Trump and and has be, is now becoming the kind of broader consensus among conservatives that actually what it means is yeah, cutting taxes and government on the whole is good, but if it if those things can be used to help kind of working class uh working class americans then then maybe those things aren't so bad uh sim- for similar reasons free trade is often not good because it's, it hurts working class people supposedly similarly immigration isn't usually good cuz that's also not good for the for that for that economic consideration, but also for broader kind of identity reasons, uh, you know, the kind of ethnic and racial makeup of the country changes in ways a lot of Americans don't like, at least conservative Americans don't like. And then a much more, well, also suspicion on foreign policy, using American power for moral goals is suspicious now. And finally, the, uh, the kind of moral traditionalist argument on uh on kind of social issues is now uh is is hasn't really changed but it's more aggressive and it's kind of metastasized and touched more areas of policy so is there anything illegitimate about that latter group of policies in and of itself like is that is that should not not be permitted within liberal democratic politics to have the right side of the spectrum be defined that way. I actually don't think there is any principled reason to think that that should not be allowed to be the kind of right-leaning contesting party's position. Now, the problem is that some of those positions brush up against uh, moral commitments that kind of put into question some of American principles, but those principles themselves evolve over time. And so I would prefer that those kind of policy questions get debated in the political arena as as has always been the case. Um, and I do think it's okay for the right-leaning party to change what it cares about. Where things get really dicey is when those policy shifts get combined with what we see actually, I think, in the United States more acutely than any other country contending with this shift is that the right-leaning party that has shifted in this way 
can barely win elections because those positions aren't that popular. And the way they are interacting with America's peculiar electoral system with multiple levers and all kinds of counter-majoritarian tripwires leads us to a situation in which we get January 6th and everything that led up to it. That is That in and of itself, I think... You know, people talk about Victor Orban in Hungary a lot as a kind of exemplar of, of how dangerous he's at the leading edge of where this is going. And I don't like Orban. I would never vote for him. I think he's pernicious. He's done all kinds of negative things. But I think Trump is actually much more dangerous than Orban. Orban actually, even if he puts his thumb on the scale a little bit, in various ways to give him and his party, the Fidesz party, uh, a, a uh, kind of an edge in electoral contests, he actually does, and his party does win votes. And he, I mean, his party won uh, in 2010 before he became a full-on populist and made a lot of those reforms. Um, and and his share of the vote and his party share of the vote hasn't changed markedly between then and now. He doesn't win 90% of the vote like a Saddam Hussein or another dictator or a Soviet dictator would have in the old days or even Putin today. Um, he wins, he wins, you know, like a little more than half. And then there are all these kind of uh, kind of jiggered things within the electoral system that then enhances that that slight edge into a much stronger majority within the legislature. But that's common. It happens in the UK where, you know, in the last election, the conservatives won a bit more than labor, but they won way more seats than labor because you get amplification. Um Whereas in this country, not only is kind of the Trumpist populist impulse a little troubling because it, it does kind of push the policy matrix a little bit away from the consensus liberalism that preceded it, but that is combined by the fact that Trump and the Republicans can barely win power uh, given that their position isn't overwhelmingly popular and has a huge, very strong uh, opposition. And they then combine that kind of marginal ability to win with a kind of contempt for the very institutions that would freeze them out of power if they lose. And so that institutional attack, I think, is uh, is more profound than what even someone like Viktor Orban is attempting in Hungary. And we need to distinguish between all of these things. So to quickly, uh, the last point before I stop blathering, to go back to my original statement about the Max Boot column, like I think Max is, is wrong on this, that actually as bad as DeSantis would be, and again, I would not vote for the guy, I would be a critic of his from beginning to end if he actually became president. But, you know, would he do what Trump did on January 6th? I doubt it. Maybe he would. I mean, I guess we don't have a huge track record on the guy. But in general, I don't fear that with him in the same way that I do with Trump. And and that means that 
that Trump shows and displays a kind of contempt for the rule of law and a kind of instinctual authoritarianism that is sort of sui generis to him and his, and he's spreading it to his most devoted followers and supporters. But it is so far still relatively contained to that subsegment of the right. And, and so if, if, you know, if we could run various scenarios about 2024 in which the Democrats can't can't win again because of inflation and other problems, I would vastly prefer DeSantis, Tom Cotton, uh, uh, Nikki Haley, any number of the kind of sort of mini Trumps that are out there on the right over Trump himself again. Trump himself again is a kind of toxin to liberal democracy uh, that makes makes him a unique threat. And all of these distinctions, I think, are important to make between kind of bad, worse, and worst of all. Well, let me pick up on that then, because it is it is the case that, at least as of right now, Trumpism is the dominant force on on the right and within the GOP. And we still, you know, it, there's this constant cycle of kind of hopeful articles from centrist and left political commentators saying, ah, it looks like his hold on the party is slipping. Like this, his, a handful of candidates he picked out didn't win, his hold is slipping. But that they always, they always seem more wishful thinking than, than reality. And, and so going into 2024, it seems like Trumpism will be the the dominant thing, whether he's the candidate or not. Um, and certainly people like DeSantis continue to like present themselves as Trumpists or inheritors of the Trumpist mantle. Um, but there's there's long been this question of whether Trump discovered his audience or created it, discovered his base or created it. And, and what I've what I've wondered, and I'm curious for your thoughts on, is how much of Trumpism, however we define that, and it could be hard to pin down what the ideological characteristics of Trumpism are, but how much of Trumpism as a movement within the GOP is an ideological movement that can be inherited, say, by someone like DeSantis, or that it is effectively a cult of personality, that it is just this this fealty to this this man this investment in you know that the trumpists are whatever it is about trump they really like and it doesn't really matter what the ideas are behind it it's more of just his his personality such that if trump disappears from the stage so he chooses not to run again he's indicted whatever the case is that this older style gop the, the Reaganite GOP that you talked about earlier can kind of reestablish itself. Like, does Trumpism disappear when Trump disappears, or is this a fundamental ideological characteristic now of the right? Great, great question. There's so much in there, um, so much that could be said. I mean, it's obviously a very uh, complicated <laughs> situation. I mean, all right, so at one level, clearly um, – if you know the history of the American right, you know that the kind of general dispensation that Trump represents ideologically has been there for a long time. And there's one story you can tell about the right 
that had been told for many decades by people in kind of the National Review circle. And I think a kind of heir to that would be Matt Cottonetti's uh, new book, The Right, which is a new history of the right in America. And that version goes something like this, that, that the right prior to, say, World War II was paleocon. It was suspicious of alliances and trade and and very kind of knee-jerk uh, um, traditionalist about morals and suspicious of Washington and government. It was a kind of folk libertarianism, to quote my former colleague, uh, Bonnie Christian, uh, who, uh, who uh, is now writing as an independent author and had a Times op-ed about this uh, recently. So that was kind of the right. And then after uh, the end of World War II with Buckley founding National Review, you have the attempt to found a more internationalist right. Uh, it, it ends up taking a side in the Cold War very hawkishly in favor of the United States and democratic capitalism against Soviet communism. And it sort of cosmopolitanized the right a little bit. Now, the original paleocon instinct remained there, and it remained there all along. Buckley sort of tried to police the margins of it, tried to excommunicate the Birchers and other small groups that were more rooted in that more conspiratorial folk libertarian attitude. Uh, the kind of people who thought that, uh, you know, Eisenhower was a communist, you know, the great general who won World War II in Europe, who was president and a Republican. He was a communist plant, you know, this kind of an attitude. Um, and that Buckleyite sort of policing of the boundaries and then expanding what conservatism could appeal to in the electorate reached its greatest uh, apotheosis in the victory of Ronald Reagan. And from Reagan, once again, through, say, Mitt Romney's 2012 campaign, you have conservatism is that with the paleocon stuff still there, um, still showing up usually on election day to vote for the, the head of the party and to vote for local offices for the Republicans, but yet a little disgruntled, not very happy, sort of going along. And you, you get moments of, of populist rebellion, like 1992, Pat Buchanan challenges George H.W. Bush in his reelection campaign and gives this, you know, blood, bloodthirsty speech at the Republican convention. Um, and so that's the narrative that leads to a conclusion that Trump didn't make this. He, he saw that establishment Republicanism that had governed the party and the country often, starting with Reagan, had weakened and was was ripe for being toppled. And so he tapped into the increasingly angry, restive paleocons who had been there all along for about the last 90 years, grumbling in the background, and became their champion. And what we've seen over the last six years is a kind of a revolution in which that base of paleocons overthrew the Reaganite elites, and they're now in charge. And a lot of that is tied up with uh, with the policy matrix that I mentioned earlier, the kind of shift on trade and immigration and foreign policy and all those things. But there's another argument, too, another tendency, which you also mentioned and talked about, which is just Trump as a person embodying 
a populist impulse, which is not limited to kind of the American scene, but is a kind of perpetual threat to liberal democracies everywhere, which is a demagogue who comes up and gains power through uh, deploying very hostile rhetoric against the establishment, against those people in power, whether they're, you know, allied with my enemies politically or my allies, whether they're in politics or business or entertainment, it doesn't matter. It's them, the elites. And I am the champion of the true people and want to overthrow them. And Trump was, it turned out to be, one of the greatest demagogues in American history and maybe world history. Once, you know, we can't judge that yet. Let's see how all of this works out. But, and I say greatest in the sense of incredibly talented, but, you know, execrable. I mean, the guy is a genius at at fastening on to the thing that will make the crowds cheer and mixing in a kind of humor with it at the same time that makes it sound like he's not taking himself too seriously, kind of winking about how it's all an act at the very at the very moment that he's doing uh, the most uh, the most vicious things possible with language attacking the press, journalists seeming like he's stirring up violence against them while sort sort of like joking that like, well, of course, we're not going to let, you know, attack the journalist, let her go. You know, he's just very, very good at that. Now, your question to set this up was like, well, which is it? What, what, what is it that has infected the Republican Party? And the truth is, it is a blend, I think, of the two. Like, it's not, I mean, the, one of the problems that, say, a Tom Cotton has, Tom Cotton also would love to run for president in 2024. He has given speeches, including at the Reagan Library several months ago that I wrote about, that are very clearly Trumpian speeches on the side of the first category that I just ran through. Very like conservatism inflected with paleocon themes on the quote, quote unquote, new correct side on all of these issues of foreign policy and trade and immigration and social issues, very rabidly engaged in the culture war in a way that is redolent of Trump. So in all those ways, he sounds like a Trumpist, but he's boring as hell and has no charisma. He sounds like a wet noodle standing up there and looks like a kind of like a, a geek who tried to make the basketball team and was cut you know, in the first round of cuts. Um, that makes me very skeptical that he could succeed in this environment. DeSantis, on the other hand, has has been shrewd enough and talented enough to combine or try to combine both in a way that I haven't seen in another candidate. And I think it's one reason why so many on the right like him, that he he stands abstractly in favor of uh, a lot of the policy changes that Trump brought in. But as the governor of a state, he has more power than a, you know one of 100 senators like Cotton to actually do certain things to show, see, I'll use power to to achieve these these things. But then he also combines that with a with a really swaggering, obnoxious, populist, demagogic rhetoric that includes him getting up 
on a stage in front of some high school kids wearing masks during the worst pandemic in a century and berating them in front of the cameras to take off your damn masks. Like, what freedom, you know? And, the, you know, I, I don't know what your, your kind of a language rating is for this podcast, but I'll at least stoop to say, you can bleep me out if you need to, he's, he's performatively an asshole. That 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 is part of his shtick, and that it is that that I think makes him a more plausible successor to Trump because you do need both. You need that kind of um, anti-cosmopolitan issue conglomeration that Trump has now put at the center of the right, combined with a kind of um, pure populist and demagogic. Um, attack on kind of the, the 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 people who would police us morally in in positions of power to basically stick a middle finger up at them and say I'm going to say anything I want and f you I don't care you need both and Trump has both and DeSantis is among all the options out there I think comes closest to matching that he might not have. Trump's kind of instinctual genius at it, but he clearly, I think, he at least understands that he needs to include that in his message, kind of not not just the what, but the how in the message, um, and has enough talent at the latter that uh, he can at least be a potential rival uh, as the leader of that faction. I want to pick up on another thing in your inaugural essay for Eyes on the Right, because I, I liked it quite a lot as kind of a, a statement of purpose for, for the broader project. And so one of the things you mentioned is a pushing back on what we might call like an American provincialism, which is to analyze all of this in the context of what is happening in America. So you mentioned Orban, who's an example of this populism in Europe. But this rise of far-right reactionary populism is not limited to the United States. It's not limited to Donald Trump. We have seen it happen in other countries in forms that look, you know, that you they're distinguishable from Trumpism, but they share a lot of common features. What has happened in the last decade or so to lead to this this renewed movement of right-wing reactionary populism on a more global scale? Well, another great question and another big, uh, you know, answer, which I will try to keep, you know, within reasonable limits. I mean, it's obviously very complicated because now we're not only talking about a continent-wide <laughs> Uh, liberal democracy of 330-odd people, but now we're talking about the broader world with all the differences across countries and regions and histories and so forth. But I do think certain there are certain commonalities that we can point to. Clearly, after the, the end of the Cold War, there was a kind of consensus in countries across the free world that, you know, if not full Francis Fukuyamaism, which I've also written about on the, on the podcast um, as a kind of exemplification of a certain form of this, but 
at least a kind of consensus that, well, you know, obviously far right politics from, you know, including fascism and totalitarianism on the far right, that that is off limits. Like most countries, say, 30 years ago, thought that was like not even open for debate. But now with the fall of the Soviet Union, it appears that kind of the leftward side of the spectrum has now been like cut off as also legitimate. So what we're dealing with is that politics going forward in free societies will take place kind of within the 40 yard lines, right? Like, so, so there will be contestation, there will be elections and they will be between a center right party or parties and a center left party or parties. They will be about whether to cut taxes or raise taxes a little bit, expand government or cut government a little, whether to choose this or that battle uh, with with a kind of revanchist authoritarian state somewhere, maybe in the Middle East or elsewhere, and you know whether to get involved in this war or that war, whether we'll all get together in a coalition of the willing to do battle with them and show them they have to join the club start taking loans from the World Bank and the IMF and so forth. Um, and, you know, whether immigration should be completely open and free or, like, somewhat limited, whether it's going to be for the sake, like Canada does, you know, for the sake of, uh, you know, uh, meeting certain demands for labor within a country for a certain period of time, or it's just going to be open to all comers. There will be these, these will be our debates. Yes or no, little more, little less. Again, within the, within the 40 yard lines of the field. And then that's about it. Now, this worked pretty well through the 90s and even into the 2000s, though, in the United States because of 9-11 and then eventually Europe when they had terrorist attacks, this was, this was jolted and it was, and it was pushed uh, but it, it was pretty resilient, at least until after the financial crisis of 2008, which began in, in the United States and then rippled throughout the global economy, caused a lot of a loss of a lot of wealth. And of course, one of the big kind of um, economic changes uh, in the post-Cold War world has been the opening up of uh you know, uh, the finance sector to small time investors in the form of retirement accounts. And then the companies that handle pensions abroad investing in, in the stock market around the world, global markets. And all of that took a big hit in 2008. And that bred resentment that then added to resentment about uh, immigration in a lot of countries. I mean, it's a little different in Europe than it is in the United States. Here, there always has been more openness to a kind of harder right-wing critique of some of these neoliberal trends. I'll use the term neoliberal, which no one can seem to define, to describe the Fukuyama tendency of the 40-yard lines defining politics. Um, in this country, there always have been people on the right were kind of allowed to make a critique and say we should, you know, maybe we should cut back on immigration. Maybe we should, uh, you know, care more about rising crime rates. Maybe we should make certain other changes. But in Europe, um, you know, Muslim immigration, for instance, in France has been much, much higher, much higher percentage of the population there than here, partly because of the uh, colonial 
history of the country and allowing immigrants from, say, Algeria in uh, over other countries, and then some of it as a result of a kind of guilt over the legacy of, of this. And so for various reasons in different countries, you know, Germany has a lot of Turkish immigrants for historic reasons because of labor, uh, you know, in the post-war decades, they brought in a lot of Turks to, again, like Canada, to fill holes in, in the, the labor economy in the country. And because of the history of fascism on the continent and shame about colonialism and its moral legacy, there was more of a sense in Europe that, like, you can't really object to having, say, high Muslim immigration because then you're like, you're evil, you're a racist, and that's not allowed. So that maybe in Europe, it became not between the 40-yard lines, it even on the right became like the 45-yard line. And you combine that kind of limiting of the margins with resentment over in this country uh, about how the war on terror was waged and our inability to actually decisively win these battles around the world and wondering why we even did them in the first place and why the intelligence about weapons in Iraq was so terribly flawed. And then add in terrorist attacks in Europe after 9-11 in Spain and France and other places and feeling like the elites here who are in charge uh, you know, defending those those margins, the the forty or forty five yard lines, like are inept. They're not. They won't actually allow us to debate these things. The anger about the uh, the lack of a kind of justice driven response to the aftermath of the financial crisis in 2008, and you get the sense, looking back, it's clear there was a kind of boiling pressure building up from the lower classes, from people who are not members of this neoliberal elite consensus of like, we're not like the government is not responding to our anger about these things. You have to listen to us and you have to listen to us and you have to listen to us saying it over and over again. And I do think that whether it's the rise of what Orban has done in Hungary or the kind of perpetual return of the same Le Pen challenge to the French center, uh, the, the Brexit vote uh, in, in uh, the UK, the rise of Trump, uh, you know, the, the rise of um, uh, the league in Italy. Like you go around the world, Bolsonaro in Brazil, um, What's what's ended up happening uh, in Turkey with Erdogan, where he's ended up versus where he started, Modi in, in India. In all of these contexts, you have variations on this same story of, you know, we let you neoliberals run the show for a couple of decades and we're not happy with the results, that you are illegitimately marginalizing the boundaries of political debate. And I think one way of understanding what we've been living through is to, to see that um, those boundaries have to be sort of fluid. They have to be permitted by the institutions of liberal democracy to kind of shift leftward and rightward, even if 
they threaten to, you know, begin to touch up against something that looks a little like illiberal communism on the left or illiberal fascism on the right, because the attempt to forestall that, to prevent it, to say you can't have that opinion, it's illegitimate, it's racist, it's immoral, ends up setting up, uh, it doesn't make it go away, It it all it does is increase resentment toward the very institutions that are preventing it. And so we need a kind of more supple understanding of these, the fringes, if it will, that if you don't let some of it in, uh, you risk a more uh, a more uh, turbulent reaction against the rules that prevent it from getting in. Um, the last thing I'll say is that you know an interesting case study. The German situation is a little sui generis, both because of Germany's incredible power economically and politically within the EU structure, and also because. Um, of their distinctive shame over uh, national socialism, which is almost in its own category of awfulness. Um, but it is interesting that the uh, the alternative for Germany, the AfD party, cropped up in the same period, middle of the of the uh, 2010s, really scared a lot of people, rightly so. And it surged to around 15% nationally in Germany, which was enough, again, to scare a lot of people and to kind of throw the uh, the coalitional government there into a little bit of unsettledness because 15% is enough to kind of mess with coalition formation if all the parties refuse to uh, to make a deal with and govern with that party because it means that now you know your total set of potential coalition mates is a lot smaller because fifteen percent of the votes are now off you know kind of off the table for negotiation. But the interesting thing is that like Germany did not ban the AfD party; they didn't allow it to sit in a government, but they did allow it to be the main opposition party to the the Christian Democrat-led Merkel government at the end of her very long reign. And the result is that the kind of support for the IFD has kind of come down. It's now getting 9-10%. Can a liberal democracy survive with a far-right party that gets around 10%? I think, yeah. And like, maybe it's better to just allow it to be there make its case, and then lose by the normal rules of democracy. Um, I mean, Germany also has a 5% electoral threshold, so if it if it sinks a lot more, it could even sort of wink out of existence at the level of the Bundestag, which would be a very good thing. Because um, it could come back if it, if it got more support, but it shows that the system is open to those who are angry on the margins. And again, that can be scary for those of us who would like the... See, we, we, we don't want the 40-yard lines to be enforced from the top. We would prefer, at least I speak for myself, I would prefer it to be roughly within the 40-yard lines, but by free choice. <laughs> I want the electorates to want politics to take place in those somewhat narrow terms. But if if there start to be rebellion on those margins, you can't keep it within the 40-yard lines by imposing it from the top down. Then bringing this back to the context of the U.S., um, 
let me, for our, I guess our final question, I'll ask another that I fear might be a big one. Um, we, in as far as combating a liberalism in the U.S., one disadvantage that we have is we don't have a multi-party democracy, so we can't relegate it to a 10 or 15%. We have two parties, and the that 10 or 15% can take over one of them and then effectively and then achieve the White House, achieve dominance in the legislature and so on, and be able to exercise power well beyond their 15% support within the electorate. And the real worry, I think, is, you know, there's there's one of the perennial questions about Trumpism is does Trump, Trumpism represent like a genuinely fascist movement? And fascism is another thing that it's it's awfully hard to come up with a single definition of it, but it does seem to have a lot of legitimately fascist characteristics. Um, and and there's a real concern that say if Trump wins again and has the control and is able to exercise more control that he'll he'll push things even in you know i think trump is trump would be an authoritarian if he were able to get away with it um and so within that within the us context how do we take those lessons that you just articulated on the international scene and apply them looking forward 2 years 10 years to trying to make sure we don't slip into something that we can't easily recover from. Yeah, and again, another great question. And you're completely right that the U.S. situation, I mean, I, I began in one of my first responses in talking about how, you know, we have to make distinctions and Trump is worse than DeSantis. And there's a way in which the American situation is uniquely alarming in the international context, precisely because of what you're saying. We are not a parliamentary system in which um, the executive sits in the legislature and really has no independent power apart from the multi-coalition government that is in charge at any given moment. That makes our president much more of a potential dictator, uh, if he can get away with it. And then we also have a two-party system where, you know, it's either one side or the other. And if one side, namely the Republicans, becomes devoted to a kind of fascistic leader, uh, then it could potentially control the whole ballgame. And, and especially with the way upcoming Senate elections are looking, it is at least within the realm of possibility that in 2025, we could have a reelected Donald Trump as president with 61 Republicans in the Senate, which which is a true horror show uh, scenario. And it really does scare me. And I don't have any great magic bullet response to this. My my I guess my response is to give a version of uh, the popularism argument that is often made about the Democrats, because we haven't talked much about the Democrats in, in our conversation, but they are the other party. And as, as, um, as commentator David Frum said in a very pithy uh, tweet the other day, I won't be able to um, uh, quote it from memory, but to, to paraphrase the point he was making in this single tweet, that because of the shape of the different electoral coalitions of the two parties in the U.S. and the way that those coalitions at the present moment are interacting with our uniquely, distinctively weird American systems, 
which are really not built for ideologically sorted parties in the way that we have them now. Um, we, we're in a situation where the Republicans are able to run a politics that is geared toward placating its most radical, committed elements in a way that the Democrats cannot do and win. So the Republicans can win by becoming ever more extreme. And that, you know, parenthetically, just so your listeners grasp why this might be, it has to do with, like, the fact that um, both the Senate and the Electoral College uh, involve winning states, and Republicans are spread around many more states than the Democrats tend to with a majority. So the Democrats, there are more Democrats, like there are more people living in blue states, in states that vote for the Democrats, but there are fewer states that vote. So they get more electoral votes, but not enough to compensate for the fact that the Dakotas and Nebraska and Kansas and all these large, largely empty states vote for the Republicans, giving them an edge in both of those institutions. So, so that's one half of the equation that Frum talks about. The other half is that the Democrats, although they cannot placate their left-wing agitating base as much and win, their potential winning coalition is much, much larger. So it's very unlikely that the Republican, say, presidential candidate in 2024 is going to win, say, 55% of the popular vote. Like, that's almost Im impossible to imagine. It is possible to imagine that a Democratic candidate could do that. Now, I don't know if it would be Biden or Harris or who it could be, but in, in terms of potential, the Democratic message appeals to more Americans. So, you know, I mean, and to see how this interacts with their institutions, all you have to do is look at the results of the 2020 election. Biden won 7 million more votes than Donald Trump. But if 50,000 of those votes flipped to Trump in three states, Trump would have won anyway. And that is a horrifying prospect for like kind of the legitimacy and stability of American democracy, because it means that, you know, uh, George W. Bush won the presidency in 2000 while losing the popular vote in one state by a very small number, like a few thousand votes. Trump won in 2016, winning the Electoral College while losing the popular vote by almost 3 million. If Trump had managed to flip those 50 or 60,000 votes in three states, he would have been reelected president while losing 7 million. And these tendencies are increasing over time. So it's conceivable that in 2024, you could have a Trump or a DeSantis win the presidency while losing the popular vote by eight, nine, ten million people, which is going to be very, very dangerous for American democracy, because I do think there are limits to how much losing the Democrats are going to be willing to take if they're actually getting that many more votes in the aggregate. Um, so I guess my... My my sh medium answer to your very complex and important question is the Democrats need to do whatever it takes to prevail. And if that means moderating on some social issues that will alienate some of their more agitated activist base, 
they should do it for the promise of winning more votes away from the Republicans in the center. And because um, really that's that's the only thing that the Republicans are going to understand and that could moderate them over the future, which is to realize you can't actually win power saying and doing the things that you're you're doing. Um, and uh, they need to learn that lesson. If they keep being able to squeak out victories doing this, they're going to keep doing it um, out of simple self-interest. So anyway, that's my unsatisfying answer. I'm never ha entirely satisfied with how I answer those kinds of questions, including in the post that uh, went up today, I made a version of this argument. And af after I do it, I think, oh, no wonder nobody likes me. <laughs> it's not very satisfying to, to say that, you know, we have to be the reasonable ones. We have to be the ones to say, sorry, you passionate supporters on my own side, you got to sit on it so that we can win later. Um, I, I get why that, you know, pisses some people off. Thank you for listening to Reactionary Minds, a project of the unpopulist. If you want to learn more about the rise of a liberalism and the need to defend a free society, check out theunpopulist.substack.com.